Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall uh, run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study of the word this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. Filled with the Spirit, ready to focus and concentrate on the study of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together this evening to be refreshed by the teaching of your word. Father, as we study uh, on the life of Abraham this evening, we pray that we might be uh, objective about our own lives as God the Holy Spirit takes the principles that we study and applies them to our life, that we may have the courage to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our own lives in terms of application and that we may put these principles into effect under the uh, leading ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Now, we started last time and the week before. We've been going through some review. And actually, this lesson, we start breaking into some material that I didn't cover or develop as much when I was at Preston City. And so we're going to uh, be combining some things that I did cover in a similar lesson, plus some new material. Now, the thing to remember when we look at Abraham and the life of Abraham is that God is making a radical shift in history. Up to this point, he has worked through all of the Gentiles. In fact, that's all there were at that time was Gentiles. It is only with the call of Abraham that God is distinguishing a specific ethnic group through whom he is going to restrict his work for the next 2,000 years. And it is going to be through the descendants of Abraham that God is going to bless all the nations. So he's setting up, as it were, a counter-cultural movement through Abram. Now, as I've highlighted this in the past, I've said there's certain things that that are emphasized in the New Testament with relationship to Abram. And it's important to understand this, especially those of you who are present tense or will be future tense involved with teaching in prep school. It's so important to understand that as we get into the New Testament, there's all kinds of, of doctrines that can get fairly abstract, and it's difficult to bring these things down to communicate at a five-year-old level or six-year-old level or even a 25-year-old level. So we have to find Old Testament examples to teach these basic doctrines. And the Old Testament's very, I mean, the New Testament's very clear on this. We go to Abraham for justification by faith, Romans 4. We go to Abraham for justification in terms of spiritual maturity, James chapter 2, 21 and 22. You go to Abraham as an example of how you get from salvation to spiritual maturity in that walk by means of faith, application of doctrine, trusting in the Lord, uh, active sense, trusting what you believe in Hebrews chapter 11. You also get a picture of Abraham as or Abram is a picture of God's elective choices in history. Romans 9 through 11 uh, makes this implicit. 
One thing that I did not include in that list that we'll see again and again in the life of Abraham is the aspect of missions. The Abrahamic covenant becomes the foundation for what we later understand to be world missions. It is through Abraham that God is going to bless all nations. So whenever you start thinking in terms of a missionary, the foundation for world missions starts right here in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And so if it comes up that you're teaching in prep school, these are the kinds of things that you need to go back and emphasize. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 gives us the basic outline and foundation for the Abrahamic covenant. And as I said, I'm going to go over this again and again until you can say this in your sleep. Land, seed, and blessing. This is crucial to understanding everything that happens in not only the rest of Genesis, but also the rest of the Old Testament. Land, seed, and blessing. The first thing that God says to Abram in verse 1 is, Get out of your father's house, get out of your country, your father's house, leave your family, leave, leave your comfort zone, and I'm going to take you to a land that is going to be yours. And then in the second verse, he emphasizes the fact that he will make him a great nation, and the key word here is the word seed. And then... Then he says that I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. This is the foundation. Land, seed, and blessing. That is the Abrahamic covenant. This is the, as we'll see, the positional reality of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, last time, we developed a section from verses 4 down through verse 9, when Abram finally left, departed Haran after the death of his father Terah, And Abram and his nephew Lot head south to the land. Finally, there's been a gradual obedience as as Abram's been on the way. And this is the first test. I said that we'll see 12 tests. Now, as I go through Abram, we may expand that. But at this point, I've identified 12 distinct tests. Almost every episode in Abram's life relates to some sort of test. And test number one was whether or not he would obey God in getting out of the land. And notice he had a partial obedience. He was to get out of the land, to leave his family, to leave everyone behind. He didn't do that. He went with his father and he went with his nephew Lot. And they only got halfway to the land. They stopped off at a at uh, Haran for a while until his father died. And then even when he left there, he still has Lot with him. And God's going to have to deal with that. And that's how God works in our lives. We don't always obey Him perfectly. And it takes time. That's the whole process of the spiritual life. God doesn't deal with every issue, every problem, every uh, issue of sin or human viewpoint in your life all at the same time. You may learn a concept in Bible class. You may learn a principle, and it may take you years before you actually get the whole thing squared away in your life. That's the process of spiritual growth. We see that with Abram. It's partial obedience, but he's moving in the right direction. But he makes mistakes like we do. He operates on his sin nature, and he doesn't want to step out completely on faith. So he takes Lot along with him, and eventually in the next chapter we're going to see how God has to come along and sort of surgically remove Lot from an influence in Abram's life. So he takes Lot with him, and he finally gets to the land. And we went through the details last week where God renews the promise in verse 7, To your descendants I will give this land. And we saw that Abram goes through a geographical process. As he goes through the land, he goes to Shechem. And then from Shechem, which is in the center part of the northern uh, area of the promised land, From there he goes down to Bethel, and between Bethel and Ai, Ai is not on the map, he goes there and he constructs an altar there, and then he moves down to the Negev. And I pointed out last time that this becomes crucial, and these sites become crucial because in in the future history of the nation. And again and again we'll see these same sites brought out, and Basically, what Abram is doing is he is staking his claim and he is recognizing what God has given him in the covenant 
positionally, but it's not his experientially. And I pointed out last week that the main idea of application is that God has given us as believers everything that we need positionally. He's given us all the assets that we need spiritually. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1.3. But the reality is that it takes us the rest of our lives, uh, and even then some, before we come to understand how that works its way out experientially. So I've got a, a comparison here between what we have positionally and what we'll have experientially, and I want to switch over to Romans chapter 6. Now, I only have one verse up here from Romans 6, so we'll have to turn there in your Bibles. Keep your place in Genesis 12. And I want to turn to Romans 6 because this is the foundation of the spiritual life. Romans chapters 1 through 5 deal with what the believer has in salvation. Romans 4 deals with justification. Romans 5 deals with reconciliation. But when you get to chapters 6 through 8, the subject is no longer justification. The issue is now sanctification. Sanctification is just a theological term for the process of spiritual growth. We talk about two different kinds of sanctification. There is positional sanctification, and there is experiential sanctification. Positional sanctification relates to everything that we have in Christ. Another term that we used last week was positional truth. Positional sanctification has to do with those absolute realities that were given to us at the instant of salvation. They're non-experiential. The only way that we can understand them is through a study of God's Word. And we begin to realize the vast amount of blessing and provision that God bestowed upon us at the instant that we were we were saved, that we are indeed new creatures in Christ with a vast array of spiritual assets. Now, foundationally for the Christian life, Paul says we have to understand that at the instant of salvation, we became dead to sin. Now, we still have a sin nature. At least last time I looked, most of us still had a problem with the sin nature. And it doesn't get any easier the more we grow as a believer. In fact, sometimes I think my sin nature just gets a little more radical. And maybe it's just because I'm more aware of what, what sin is made up of. And recently I was in a discussion with someone who I'm not sure is even a believer, and I realized once again how many unbelievers don't have an accurate or biblical concept of what sin is. You, if you're involved in witnessing to an unbeliever and you bring up sin, you need to take some time to make sure they understand what sin is. Because if they come from certain religious backgrounds, they may be thinking of sin in terms of, some sort of action that makes it impossible to be saved. They may think in sin only in terms of certain extreme or overt sins. And so we have to stop and take time to recognize that sin is any act, any thought, any deed that is in violation of the character of God, that God's character provides that absolute standard by which sin is judged. And whenever the creature acts independently of God... That is an act of sin. It doesn't matter what the action may be. It can be as simple, as I pointed out the other night, as eating a piece of fruit, usually not on somebody's list of, of heinous sins. And when we get saved, or before, actually before we're saved, let's not get ahead of ourselves, before we're saved, we're slaves to sin. It does, and that's the point of Romans 6. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how nice or how kind or polite or how well you were reared. You always remember children are reared. They're not raised. You raise hell. You rear children. And when you are an unbeliever, the only thing that you can do is sin. Everything you do comes out of your sin nature. Now, you may do good deeds, relative good, human good, but it still flows from that sin nature. That's the only nature that you have. So no matter how sweet and wonderful somebody is, they're just a sinner, and that's the only thing that they can produce. But once we're saved, we are freed from that 
dominion, that tyranny of the sin nature. And this is what Romans 6 is talking about. And Paul begins to focus on this in verse 6. He says, knowing this, actually it's a, it's a causal adverbial participle. Because you know this, he's assuming that his readers understand this principle. Because you know this, that our old man, that is the sin nature, the old man was crucified with him. Now, when something is crucified, it's gone. It is no longer operational. And the verb there is susterao, and it's an aorist uh, passive indicative indicating that it re- the, the old man receives the action of being crucified, and it means to crucify together with. So in a real sense, your sin nature is nailed to the cross. And it is dead, but it's dead positionally. Now, what does death mean when we talk about it being crucified with him? The concept of death has to do with separation, not ceasing existence. It is separated from that position of power or tyranny. Death in the Bible always refers to separation, not cessation of existence. When Adam sinned, He died spiritually, but he was still alive, and he was separated from God, though, because of spiritual death. When we die physically, we don't go out of existence. Our soul is still alive somewhere. It's just been separated from the body. So death has the idea of separation. So at the point of salvation, there is a separation from the sin nature in terms of its power over us. So Paul says, because we know this, that our old self, the sin nature, was crucified with him in order that, and even though this is an aorist tense, it has the idea of something that will take place in the future. In order that, for the purpose that, our body of sin, that is the sin nature, might be done away with. That's the idea, that the, the eventually there it will be a removal of the sin nature. That doesn't happen until phase three, when we're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. You're going to have a problem with your sin nature all your life. And this is something that so many Christians just can't quite accept. And I think it leads to a tremendous amount of frustration on the part of especially believers who are prone to asceticism. They just can't understand why it is that after 20 years of being a Christian, they still have problems with lust or with lying or with mental attitude sins or with gossip or whatever it may be. And then they start questioning whether or not they were ever saved. The reality is, is that your sin nature and whatever the proclivities of your sin nature are, are still going to be there 20 years from now. The reality of this passage is that you don't have to follow the leading of that sin nature. This is what Romans 6 is all about. And it's based on, first of all, as we see in this passage, knowing something. Because we know some doctrine. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with, that is, in the process of sanctification, losing its influence, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Prior to salvation, you're a slave to sin. Afterwards, you either enslave yourself back to sin whenever you let the sin nature control, or you get back in fellowship and make yourself a slave to righteousness. Second thing, second word I want to point out here in this verse is this concept of sin. And sin is the Greek word hamartia, which in this passage is a singular. And when it's in the singular, it frequently has the idea of the sin nature, not individual personal sins, but that capacity to sin. And so here it has the idea of that which departs from a standard, misses the mark, and hence it means to sin, to violate the character of God. So... We go on from here then to look at the last phrase, uh, <clears throat> slave to sin, which is the verb duleo, meaning to be a slave or a servant. And it indicates, 
If you're a slave, it indicates a lack of volition. But when we were before we were saved, there was no volition to stop sinning. We just couldn't do it. No matter that's what Paul discovers in Romans seven. But after salvation, we do make a decision whether or not to go back under the sin nature. But once we're out of fellowship, it's just like we're in that enslavement all over again. We just do whatever the sin nature uh, has us do until we make that one and only decision to stop it, which is to confess our sin. And then we're back in fellowship and we become a slave to righteousness. This is why sometimes Christians seem to be hypocritical. Because we have this struggle between two natures. What Paul talks about in Galatians 5 is the walk by the Holy Spirit or the walk by the sin nature. And when we're walking by the Holy Spirit, we can be very different from the kind of person that we are when we start letting that sin nature lead us around all the time. And that's where you see the struggle in the Christian life. And the only thing that resolves that is to start operating on Bible doctrine and letting thought control your life. Now, we've looked at the Abrahamic covenant in terms of positional truth. In the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant, in the, in the history of Israel, the Abrahamic covenant speaks of their position before God. What they had is an absolute. For the believer in the church age, we're in Christ. That's our positional truth. Now, they have three things in common. The Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. Our position in Christ is unconditional. You didn't get in Christ on your own because of your own effort, because of your own personality, because of anything that you did. It was all on the basis of God's unconditional promise and his unconditional love. The second thing about the about the Abrahamic covenant and being in Christ is that these can't be lost. They are ours permanently. They can't be reversed. The Jew can't lose the promise that God made to Abraham. No matter how disobedient the Jews have been, God will eventually fulfill that promise. And third, it's the basis for blessing. The basis for blessing in the Old Testament is the Abrahamic covenant. The basis for blessing in your life as a believer is your position in Christ. That position in Christ. Now let's go back and look at the next verse in Romans Romans 6. Romans 6 says, Knowing this, because you know this, our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For, and then here he gives a principle. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, that's the New King James translation but it's not a good translation. The verb there that's translated has been freed is the perfect passive indicative of the verb dikaiao. Dikaiao is the verb for justification. Looks like this. D-I-K-A-I-O. Now, in the perfect tense... This always emphasizes completed action. And the emphasis here is on the fact that it is an intensive perfect, which puts the emphasis on the completedness of the action, not necessarily on the present results of the action. And so it should be translated that he who has died has been justified. It's not freed. Dikaiao means to be justified, means to be declared righteous. So the issue here is focusing on what happened at that instant of salvation. That when you put your faith alone in Christ alone, at that instant you are declared righteous and just. And everything in the spiritual life then flows from that. But the spiritual life is distinct from justification. It flows from it, but they are not the same. Now, the reason I emphasize that is because that was the basic error that entered into uh, theological history and shaped Roman Catholic theology. See, if justification and sanctification are contemporaneous, 
then you only know that you're justified by means of your sanctification. So the only way you can know you're saved is if you're living the so-called Christian life. If you're not living the Christian life, then maybe you're not saved. This is the same problem you have today in so-called lordship salvation. They don't distinguish between justification and sanctification. A person can be justified and be living as if they're not justified because they still have a sin nature. Now, what Paul is doing in Romans 6 is pointing out the fact that you have a positional reality, and that is that you have been justified, and at that same moment in time, you died to sin. It is a real death to sin. It's not hypothetical. It's real, but the sin nature still operates. You are freed from the sin nature. You all remember the basic adage that we've gone over many, many times. You've got three stages of salvation, three phases of salvation. Stage one, we are freed from the penalty of sin. Stage two, we're saved from what? The power of sin. Stage three, we're saved from the presence of sin. We're talking about phase two, being saved from the power of sin. The power is broken positionally at the cross. We are no longer under the tyranny of the sin nature. Before you were saved, the only thing you could do was operate on the sin nature, either human good or sin. But after you're saved, you have a real choice. It is a volitional issue. You have to think about that. That's the issue here. This is why Paul says in verse 6, because we know something, and then he comes back again in verse 9, uses the same kind of participle again, knowing, because you know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Once again, it's knowledge, it's knowledge, it's knowledge. And in verse 8, I skipped over that to hit the participle, but in verse 8, Paul says, Now, if we died with Christ, if, and we did, that is an absolute, and we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. And there's the analogy. Christ's death was once for all. Therefore, when you trust Christ as your Savior, there is a permanent break with the dominion of sin. That tyranny is broken. If you say, well, Pastor, I don't feel like that tyranny is broken. I still feel like I'm under, under a tremendous amount of pressure from my sin nature. Well, that's your volition. Because you don't have enough doctrine yet, or you're not applying enough doctrine yet, to realize the freedom that you have in Christ. This is what Galatians 6.1 talks about. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. We've been set free from the power of the sin nature positionally, not experientially. That's the process of the spiritual life, which we'll see again and again as we go through our study of Abram. Now in verse 10, or excuse me, verse 11... Paul gets to the real issue. He says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. See, in verses 1 through 9, he's talking about the positional reality. Now he says, you don't realize this in your own life, you don't feel like you're freed from sin, then you have to reckon yourselves dead to sin. Now, what in the world does that mean? I'll never forget when I was in my first year at Dallas Seminary. And I never had sanctification of spiritual life quite taught like this before. And we were going through Romans 6, and this is where we started in that, that particular class. Now, there were a lot of things I didn't agree with in that particular course, but the, the uh, professor kept coming back to this verse, the first two or three lectures, and emphasizing this. And what in the world does it mean to reckon yourselves to be dead to sin? Well, this is an imperative Imperative mood. Now, the first thing that you have to recognize in Greek is that the imperative mood is not emphasizing uh, reality. It's emphasizing choice. So the emphasis on any kind of imperative is directed immediately to your volition. Now, what's important to notice when when you're looking at an imperative is what the tense is. And here it's a present tense. And in Greek, a present tense means that this is supposed to be standard operating procedure. 
This is your general habit pattern that should characterize your life day in and day out. Okay, that gets us what the grammar says. Now, what does the word mean? What's the verb here? The verb in the Greek is logizomai. L-O-G-I-Z-O-M-A-I. Now, that last ending always throws a few basic first-year Greek students because that means it has a middle voice or passive voice uh, ending. But the reality is this is a class of verbs that where the active voice has fallen off through usage over, over time, and it really has an active meaning even though it has a passive or, or middle form. So that means that this is directed to your volition and you have a choice to make as to whether or not you are going to fulfill this mandate. Well, what does the word mean? Well, if you understand anything about uh, basic uh, word meaning, you ought to catch a clue here from this first part, L-O-G-I. You just need to add one letter to it, and you'll get an idea of what we're talking about here. Add the letter C, logic. This is talking about thinking. It's talking about putting together a series of premises and coming to a conclusion. It's talking about thought. We lose that from the old King James, reckon yourselves dead, and I think the New American Standard translates it, consider yourselves dead. And with both of those words, we lose the real power in this command. It is a command to think. It is a a, a mandate to think about all of the issues that we're facing at any point in time and come to a specific conclusion that is related to what Jesus Christ did on the cross. It doesn't matter how much outside pressure I may feel or experience in order to, to do something. It doesn't matter how much internal pressure I'm feeling in the sense of being tempted. What the Word of God is saying here is stop and think. Stop and think in terms of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross and what happened to you at the instant of salvation. This is why it's so important to go over positional truth again and again and again. And Paul says, therefore, excuse me, he says, likewise, reckon or come to the conclusion, come to the logical, rational conclusion that you are indeed dead to sin. In other words, you have to think about it. The Christian life is a life of thinking. It's not a life of emoting. It's not a life of just getting together and having warm fuzzies and and hearing uh, sermons or messages like you can over here at the summit. Uh, It's so popular just to hear whatever you want to hear, be told how much potential you have and how wonderful you are and how God is so great because He gets to experience some fellowship with you. You know, that's a place for people who, who just want to hear what they want to hear and they don't want to hear what the Word of God says. Recently I was, I was in Memphis at a, at a church and I was talking to the pastor there and he, and we were talking about this phenomenon of these, these uh, churches and he said, well, he said the problem today is you've got itching ears and greedy preachers. I just love the way he boils that down. Itching ears and greedy preachers. And itching ears will pay any amount of money to hear a preacher tell them what they want to hear. Isn't that the irony? People who are grace-oriented won't pay hardly enough to get a pastor to teach the truth. But when you're in carnality and you just want somebody to tell you what you want to hear so you can be comfortable in your carnality, you'll pay any amount of money to hear that. But then, too often in grace-oriented churches, well, we won't go there. Okay, the Christian life is a life of thought. That means you have to think about something. You have to know something. You have to know doctrine. You have to understand all of the dynamics that went that took place on the cross. You have to understand all the dynamics that happened to you at the instant of your salvation. And then when you hit various problems, issues, adversity in your life, the first thing you have to do is what? React. No. Stop and think. 
Stop and think. Again and again, it's to stop and think. Now, if we could just stop and think two or three times a day, what a difference that would make in our application of doctrine. I don't know what, it's, what, what your life is like, but I know in my life too often when, when things start happening and you have this and that, uh, suddenly I stop and I realize I'm just reacting to this situation and that person and, and this inconvenience and that minor thing. And, and more often it's the minor things that get me all wrapped around the axle rather than the big things. You know, as soon as a big thing happens, what do we do? We go, well, okay, I better apply some doctrine here. But it's those little inconsequential inconveniences that seem to set us off. And what do we need to do? Well, the passage says we need to stop and we need to think. We need to evaluate. Now, as soon as you say think about something, what does that bring to bear? As soon as you have to stop and think about something, that means you have to be able to evaluate what is going on. As soon as you use that word evaluate, that implies some sort of norm or standard, some sort of overall global grid through which you are able to interpret the details of your life and the situations and the circumstances of your life. That means you have to have either a biblical grid or you're going to have a human viewpoint grid. Those are the only two options. Some people think there are hundreds of options, but there aren't. You can boil them all down. You either have a human viewpoint grid or you have a divine viewpoint or biblical grid for evaluating the details of your life. Now, how are you going to get that biblical grid? Is it just going to happen by osmosis? You're going to put your Bible under your pillow at night and pray that somehow it leaks in? You're going to sit around and watch some TV preacher or maybe listen to a tape or go to church once a week? No. You have to virtually reprogram your thinking because we spend a vast amount of our life being inadvertently programmed by the human viewpoint, worldly, cosmic system around us. We get it through peers. We get it through television. We get it through all kinds of different media. We, we just absorb it in our culture. We grew up with that. I don't know how many of you were saved before you were 20 years of age, but it doesn't matter. I was saved when I was six years old. And it's amazing how much human viewpoint garbage I absorbed, even though I was going to a solid doctrinal teaching church, and my parents were constantly trying to get me to think in terms of a biblical viewpoint. Nevertheless, my sin nature just soaked up incredible amounts of human viewpoint garbage to rationalize and defend its own behavior. The, re- the response to this is we have to think, and we have to think in terms of some sort of solid biblical grid. Every time you hit a circumstance or situation in life, especially some type of adversity, we have to just teach ourselves to stop and think. How are we to look at this from a biblical viewpoint? Now, for Abraham, what he had to do was think in terms of that Abrahamic covenant. For us, we have to think in terms of something that seems a little more complex, and that is what we have in Jesus Christ, all that we have as part of our position in Him. Now, in terms of the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham had seven realities that are outlined in that covenant. And you get them from just breaking down the basic phrases of those first three verses. God said He would make him a great nation. I will make you a great nation. That's an unconditional promise. Second, God said, I will bless you. Third, God said, I will make your name great. Fourth, he said, and you will be a blessing. Notice the first three all started with God, what God was going to do. So ultimately, in terms of understanding Abraham's position in the covenant, he had to start with God. So whenever we are going to think in terms of, uh, of dealing with these reactions in life, the situations in life, we have to think in terms of God. That's why you have to understand the essence of God first and foremost. You always start with God. You don't start with the situation. You don't want start with the experience. You don't start with your feelings. You start with who is God. See, this was the basic test in that first command when God said to get out of his land, leave his family behind, was, are you willing to trust me, what you know about me? It was a test of whether or not Abraham 
would utilize a faith rest drill with reference to the essence of God. So the fourth reality is that Abram would be a blessing. Now, this is crucial to understand in terms of this first test that, or second test that we'll get to. Fifth point, he says, I will also bless those who bless you. So once again, God is making a specific promise. I will bless those who bless you. Sixth, and him, he who curses you, I will curse. Again, it comes right back to the person and character of God. And then result in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's our basis for missions. So Abraham is being told that he's got to go to a specific piece of real estate. This is where we're going to have our relationship, Abram. And that relates how Abram is in the land. His relationship to the land is comparable to our relationship abiding in Christ. When Abraham is obedient and he's in the land, that's a place of blessing. When he's disobedient, he's out of the land, and that's a place of cursing, a place of divine discipline. When we are obedient and we're in fellowship, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, abiding in Christ, we're in fellowship, and that is a place of blessing. When we sin, we're out of fellowship, that's a place of divine discipline. Now, let's get into our passage. Abraham is finally headed out. Genesis chapter 12, he's headed out and he is moving through the land. Now, an interesting thing is how this works itself out in other other passages. For example, Joshua 24 verse 3, God is speaking to Joshua and says, "Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river and led him throughout all the land of Canaan." And multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. So God reminds the people of how he took Abraham through the land. This was a recognition of all that God had given him in the covenant unconditionally. wasn't his experientially, but it was his unconditionally. This was his reality, comparable to our reality of being dead from sin, even though it's not real in our experience yet. There's a little bit of a pun here. The Old Testament is filled with puns. It just shows a little bit about God's sense of humor. And through these puns, he reminds the reader of uh, certain things that are going on here. Abraham's name is, uh, you have basic consonant of alpha, uh, and then you have um, bait, and then resh. The alpha actually isn't. Translated, It's more of a, a soft, glottal stop. But you have another word, the other side, which is the Hebrew word abar. They don't look quite the same, but it's, it's a bit of a pun. Abram's name looks like this to begin with. I guess you would you'd transliterate it with sort of an apostrophe there. B-R. And then you have another word to go across, and this is the word avar, and that's tr- transliterated like this. And so they would sound the same. And so God is basically reminding the people through the use of a, through the use of a pun that there is a purpose to his actions here. That he's taking Abram through the land for the purpose of showing him what God has provided for him. As Abram went through the land, he is learning what God has already given him. You have a similar passage in Genesis 41:46. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. This was typical. He's taking control. He's realizing what his dominion is. So you have all kinds of word plays throughout, throughout Genesis. Uh, many times in the story of, of Isaac, you have the verb uh, tzachak, which means to laugh. That's the verb on which the name Isaac is built. When you get... A little further on in the narrative of, of uh, Genesis, you have a, a frequent use of the word akov, which is the word for heel. 
grabber or overreacher, and that's the basis for the word Jacob. And then when you come to the end of Genesis and you're dealing with Joseph, you have the Hebrew word Asaph used again and again, which is the basis for the word Joseph. And the writer weaves these words in there. You miss it completely in the English, but it's a tremendous testimony to the fact that you have one author of Genesis. And that fits what the Bible claims, which is that Moses wrote Genesis. That's the big challenge today. You go to any university campus in this country, they'll tell you that, that Moses didn't write Genesis. Whoever heard of that? Somebody, a bunch of people wrote it, and it finally got cobbled together by some editor about the 5th century uh, B.C. And, this is, and there's no evidence that there was even a Moses. That's just a legend. But, see, if you study the text, you see that there's all kinds of clues, all kinds of indications of, of what God is doing. Okay, let's get down to Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land. Immediately, we have a problem. Abram is now in the place that God has commanded him to go to. Verse 7, he has a specific promise. To your descendants, I will give the land. Back in verse 1, he's told to get out of your country and go to the land. He didn't say go there and then leave. He said go there. This is the place that I am giving you. So there's a test now. He gets in the land, he gets to the place where God wants him, and now there are problems. See, too many Christians get this, these silly ideas that if I'm a Christian, I'm not going to have any problems. That if I'm a, a believer and in right relationship with Jesus, that, that there won't be any suffering, there won't be any adversity, there won't be any difficulty. We'll just have a life of pure bliss and happiness now that I'm a Christian. And unfortunately, there are silly, superficial uh, Christians who present the gospel in that way. You want to have all your problems solved? Just trust Jesus. They'll all go away. That isn't what it means. We can have a solution to our problems, but that doesn't mean there are no problems. That doesn't mean there's no adversity. That doesn't mean that when you're doing what God wants you to do, that life it may not be uh, as easy as you think it would be. There is adversity. There is famine in the land. So the first thing that we have to deal with here is an understanding of how to deal with adversity. We get a picture of it here. And before we get into it, we need to review two basic definitions. First of all, that adversity is the inevitable, outside, daily pressures of life that attack and seek to penetrate the soul. It's that inevitable outside pressure. It can come from things that seem pretty minor, inconsequential, to things that are pretty major, pretty significant. That's the outside pressure. But something can happen on the inside, and that's stress. Stress is the optional, key word, it's optional. It depends on your volition. It's the optional inside pressure of the soul caused by reaction to the external pressures of adversity. As soon as you see that, Think in terms of the sin nature. As soon as we react with the sin nature to some adversity, we're immediately out of fellowship and it causes problems in the soul. Whenever you're operating on the sin nature, it's creating a, a problem in the soul at, which can lead to fragmentation. It can lead to all kinds of mental problems, emotional instability, and, and many other things in life. And when you get up into your 50s and 60s and you start seeing some people who just don't seem to be in touch with reality, it's because they have been practicing a habit pattern, a mental habit pattern for years of handling uh, outside pressure through some sort of sin nature uh, technique. There's all kinds of techniques to handle problems and adversity apart from the Word of God. We're experts at it. What we need to be as believers is experts on using the problem-solving devices. So as I've been working on this, I've been developing a little chart here to try to help us think through what happens at that moment of adversity. Remember, we have to stop and think. And usually, as soon as something goes wrong, as soon as something operates uh, differently, you know, Bruce, there's something clicking up here. I don't know what it is, but 
the camera over here is going click, 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 click. So let's check that out. As soon as we hit something that doesn't go the way we want it to go, that, that isn't the way we have planned the day, and as soon as something goes uh, wrong, what happens? We react in some way, whether it's just uh, some expletive that uh, fires out of our mouth or whether it is uh, throwing something across the room or whatever it may be, we, that almost instantaneous natural reaction is to do something that flows from the sin nature. Now, Abram is in a situation that is a major adversity. This is a famine cubed. He's got a threefold problem here. He's got a personal problem. He is living in the midst of some sort of meteorological disaster. And I think most of us are thinking in terms of what just happened recently with the earthquake and the the, uh, tsunamis that uh, wiped out so many people. You just think about all the different kinds of meteorological or geological disasters that can take place, and Abraham is faced with one. So it's a personal problem because the weather's changed. He can't go down to the market and get uh, all the produce that he needs to live, and, and things are getting kind of tough. It's probably hot and dry, which had not been the norm. See, as we'll see when we look, skip over a minute to verse 10 of chapter 13. When Abraham has to divide the land with Lot, Lot lifts his eyes and saw all the plain of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Now, if you've been over to Israel, you know that's not true anymore. There's been a climate shift. It was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards the Zoar. Now, I don't know how many pictures you've seen of Egypt. But Egypt doesn't look like a well-watered land. Now, you can rationalize and say, well, that's talking about the area around the Nile. No, it's not. There have been a number of models, of our climatological models, developed by meteor- meteorologists working with the uh, Institute of Creation Research, which all seem to demonstrate that in the years after the flood, there were probably uh, various ice ages, and these just happened for short periods of time not like uh, we're usually taught in evolution class. And during these cycles of weather, the equatorial belt around the middle of the earth would have been extremely tropical. And if you get up in the, um, and take infrared pictures from satellites of the Sahara, you can see old riverbeds. You can see the evidence that once the Sahara Desert was, was a well-watered area and that there were uh, trees and there, were, there was agriculture there. But as, uh, the, and, and I guess the best way to explain it is sort of like a, the ripple effect. You throw a rock in, the, in a still pool of water. As you're close to the place where the rock hits the water, you're going to have uh, higher, more dramatic waves. And the further you get away from that epicenter, the more it, it levels out. Well, just in the years following the flood, you would have meteorological shifts that would go to extremes. And one of the results of that is that there would be some years where you would have these ice ages and the central area around the earth was more tropical. And then as those ice ages would recede, it would become more dry. And so Abraham is being caught in the middle of one of those cycles, and there's a major famine. So he not only has a problem for himself, but he has his family to deal with. He has his wife. He has to take care of her. So that intensifies the adversity. It's one thing to face hard times when we're living alone. It's another thing when we have a spouse and or children to take care of as well. And he has not only his wife to take care of, but also his nephew Lot. But it's even greater than that. Because he has to take care of all of his servants, all of his slaves, all of the people who work for him. And at this point, uh, he picks some more up when he goes down to Egypt, of course. But he may have had as many as 200 uh, people that he's responsible for. So he's got a problem for himself. He's got a problem for his family. And he has a problem for all of his uh, slaves and servants, everyone that he's responsible for. 
Now, we've hit the same kinds of adversity. It may not be as extreme, but just some typical types of adversity that we run into are, first of all, inconveniences. These are the things that seem to easily get us out of fellowship. Just some little minor thing, and the next thing we know, we're trying to put our fist through the wall, and if not, we're thinking about it. We have to go through people testing. We run into all kinds of different people that just aggravate us, especially bureaucrats. But, you know, sometimes it can be just the person at the checkout stand, the person who we have to deal with at the store, or we have some problem with our computer, and so we get on the phone and we call up somebody. We don't know them and they don't know us, and we have a tendency to just really yell and scream at them. And because they can't solve our problem or they're the representative for the company and they don't know anything, they're just the first person that we ever talk to. And how, you know, that's one of the things that always aggravates me is you, you have a real problem and you need to talk to somebody who's knowledgeable. And you get somebody with a high school education who can hardly put a sentence together and they're the first line of defense. You need to have somebody there who can, who can actually do something about your problem. So we have people testing. Then we have system testing. And when, and this gets really bad when they're combined and you have bureaucracy testing. And that bureaucracy testing doesn't have to be governmental. It can have to do with any kind of uh, organization you're working with. You can have health testing, financial testing, grief or loss testing. It doesn't have to be the loss of a person. It can be the loss of anything. You could, you could go through a financial disaster and lose everything, and not only are you dealing with the fact that now you're in debt, but you've lost things that meant a lot to you, and you don't have them anymore. You don't have a lifestyle uh, that you enjoyed for a while. So loss can apply to just about anything, to people, to things, to jobs, to dreams. You have to go through that adversity. You have weather, dis- weather disasters, all kinds of different sources of adversity. Well, the first thing you have to do when you hit adversity is to think. But the first thing that most of us do is to react. The first thing is volition. We always make a choice. You may not be volitionally conscious of the choice that you're making. You may just instantly react in anger, frustration, whatever it may be. But at some point, you were making a choice and you learned how to respond to those kinds of circumstances. Sometimes people respond to very differently to circumstances. One people gets mad and angry. Another person seems to get very calm. What they've done over the period of their life is that for various reasons, we choose various approaches to problems. I'm not talking about problem-solving as a believer. I'm talking about problem-solving as an unbeliever. You decide that certain circumstances are best handled certain ways. Sometimes Oh, I'm just going to be sweet and kind and gentle, and I'm going to talk a certain way. And then if that doesn't work, then you're going to get angry and hit them over the head with something or intimidate. But you choose these strategies. Now, that the options are either to trust the Lord and operate on the faith rest drill and use the problem-solving devices, and that's divine viewpoint. But what I want to focus on is what happens in the other way. We go... We, we don't use the faith rest drill. We deny uh, any promises, the provision of God, and we try to solve the problem on our own. And there are a multitude of human viewpoint strategies that we can adopt. And this is exactly what happens with Abraham in Genesis 12. There's a famine in the land, and what does he do? Rather than staying where God put him and trusting in the Lord... Abraham finally decides that the best way to take care of everybody is to go down to Egypt and to live there. So he is going to take the human viewpoint solution. And what happens here is he leaves the land, which was what God gave him, which means that he is no longer going to think in terms of his positional reality. Second, when he gets down into the land... What happens? He lies about Sarah. She almost gets taken uh, in to be the wife of the Pharaoh, and he puts the seed, remember the promise of the seed? He puts the seed at risk. And third, he brings divine discipline 
on the house of Pharaoh, so he is failing to be a blessing to all nations, and he is going to be a source of judgment for those around him. And this is what happens in our life. Every time we choose that path of trying to solve the problems on our own, we forget our positional reality in Christ, we put our future growth as believers at risk, and we fail to be the blessing God designed us to be to those around us. And we'll come back next time and develop that a little bit further with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study these things tonight. We pray that you would challenge us with the importance of thinking about what we do in terms of the positional blessings that you have given us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be willing to meet this challenge. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.